in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we got Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 113. This psalm has no title and therefore the author is not known. Psalm 113 is the third psalm in a group of psalms in book 5 of the psalms they divided the book of psalms into five books in the fifth book from psalm 111 to 118 they call it Alleluia Psalms why they call it Alleluia Psalms? because each psalm starts with the word Alleluia we know most of the psalms are concluded by Alleluia but only eight psalms start by Alleluia from 111 to 118 Psalm 113 is the third psalm in the fifth book of Psalm known Alleluia Psalms in Arabic it is clear Alleluia in English praise the Lord because Hallelu you know Arabic and Hebrew are very close to each other so Hallelu means praise Ya Yahweh Jehovah so Hallelu Ya means praise Jehovah praise the Lord that's why in English you will not find Hallelu Ya because he translated so the translation of Hallelu Ya is praise the Lord also six psalm from psalm 113 to 118 they are known as halil or hymns of praise psalm halil means again hallelu praise because these psalms are psalms of praise psalm of praise and there are three groups of the praise psalms or halil psalms one group they call it the Egyptian halids why they call it Egyptian because they memorize what God did in the land of Egypt till the exodus from the land of Egypt so that's the first group from 113 to 118 so this Psalm 113 is considered the first of the first group of Halil Psalms which is the Egyptian Halil Psalm from 113 to 118 six Psalms the second group is called the Great Halims the Great Praises from 120 to 136 including the Psalm of Ascents when they ascended the mountain to go to the temple to praise God and these are the great praises including the psalm of ascents when they ascended the mountain to go to the temple to praise God and then from Psalm 146 to 150 it's called the conclusive halils conclusive praises from 146 to 150 because these are the concluding psalms of the book of psalms these called halil or praise psalms the egyptian halils the great halils and the conclusive halils the egyptian halils which commemorate what god did in the land of egypt and their exodus from the land of egypt these psalms were sung at passover because Passover is the exodus from Egypt Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacle and Feast of Dedication and all the new moons the new moons for the Jewish was considered a feast at the Passover it was divided into two parts because I told you from Psalm 113 to 118, six Psalms, they are chanted in the Passover. The first two Psalms of these six Psalms, 113 and 114, were sung before the second cup of the Paschal Supper. In the Paschal Supper, there are four cups. 
before the second cup, after the first and before the second, they chant Psalm 113 and 114. Psalm 113 and 114 is chanted before the second cup, also before the meal itself, because the meal started immediately after that ceremony. They chant Psalm 113, 114, second cup, the meal. And second part, which is the fourth Psalm, 115, 116, 117, 118, they were chanted after filling the fourth cup. And this was the hymn which Christ and the Apostle are stated to have sung after the Last Supper. When you read in the Gospel of Matthew and Gospel of Mark, after the Passover and after the mystical supper, we read they praised God or chanted songs and then they went to Gethsemane. What are the songs that they chanted? These four psalms, 115, 116, 117, 118, according to the Jewish custom. Also, Psalm 113 is classified as a community hymn of praise, not individual. Some Psalms, he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. So it is individual. But this community, he is asking the servant of the Lord to praise God, because he is calling its hearers to praise the name of the Lord for all of the Lord's goodness to the people. It is an appropriate introduction to the Passover story. That's why I told you Psalm 113 and 114, they are chanted before the second cup and before the Passover meal. It is a proper introduction to the Passover story, especially in Psalm 114, what happened in the land of Egypt is recounted in Psalm 114. So Psalm 113 is calling the people to praise God. Why? Psalm 114 explained all the wonders that God did in the land of Egypt. After this, they take the second cup and eat the Passover meal. Psalm 113 begins and ends with Alleluia. The first word is Alleluia, and the last word is Alleluia. And these Psalms, many commentators say it belongs to the post-exile period because it expresses the gratitude of Israel for its restoration from the captivity and bringing them back to Jerusalem. But some commentators believe the author is David. If you compare between this psalm and the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and the prayer also of Saint Mary, the mother of God, you will find some similarities between this psalm and the prayer of Hannah, mother of Samuel, and the praise of Saint Mary, the mother of God. Also in the Agbaya, we pray Psalm 113 in two hours. In the first hour of the Agbaya, and in the ninth hour of the Agbeya. So we pray twice, in the first hour of the Agbeya and in the ninth hour of the Agbeya. As I told you, it is short psalm, only nine verses. Verse one to three, a call to unceasingly praise God. He is calling all the people to praise God unceasingly, without ceasing. 4 to 6, the greatness of God's glory, the greatness of the glory of God. 7 to 9, God's care for the lowly. And this is the part that was quoted by Hannah, mother of Samuel, and Saint Mary, mother of God. So let's start from verse 1. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. 
So he's calling all the servants of God to praise the name of God. This is the third consecutive psalm to begin with Alleluia or praise the Lord. As I told you, Alleluia psalms start from 111 to 118. So 111 start with Alleluia, 112 start with Alleluia, 113 start with Alleluia. That's why it is the third consecutive psalm to begin with Alleluia. As in Psalm 111 and 112, it is both a personal statement of praise and encouragement for others to do the same. So when he say, praise the Lord, O servants, he's encouraging himself and encouraging others to pray God. Who are the servants of the Lord? He's saying, praise, O servants of the Lord. They are all the believers who fear the Lord and those who serve the Lord willingly and cheerfully with much pleasure and delight in righteousness and holiness. They serve the Lord with reverence and godly fear. Servants of the Lord are those who profess to serve and obey Him, who acknowledge Him as their God. All the servants of the Lord are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God because praise is a spiritual sacrifice. So all of us are included. All of us, we should offer praise to the Lord. The author is saying, let it be your main focus, O servant the Lord, all you who claim to be servants of the Lord, to reflect with a pure mind on the greatness of your Lord and with the affections of your heart to praise his infinite name. Make it your goal in everything you do. As St. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or do anything, make it all for the glory of God with your mind and with your heart. And we, the servants of God, we have a special reason to praise him. We have to honor God because he gave us to participate in his great work. The word servants mean I am participating in the work of God. I am serving him. I am participating in his work. And he promised us if we serve him, he will give us the eternal glory. For this reason, we praise him because he gave us the honor to be his servants. Whether we are in our contemporary time, whether we are cleaning the church or doing maintenance work or serving in Sunday school or serving in the kitchen or serving as deacons or serving as clergy, it's an honor. And every time we serve God and serve in his church, when we feel this honor that God allowed us to participate in this service, we need to praise him. To praise, he said to praise the name of the Lord. Praise, O servant of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. What does it mean to praise the name of the Lord? By the way, the name of God is used three times in this verse. And we are called to praise the name of God three times. Praise the Lord, first time. Praise, O servant of the Lord, second time. Praise the name of the Lord, third time. The name of the Lord, this means honor and exalt God himself. God's character that are represented by his name because the name represents who God is when we say Savior means his character is to save us Lord he is the master of us all shepherd he is shepherding his people etc and the repetition of exhortation to praise God means either the abundance of praise to be given to the Lord praise God continually that's why he said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. 
praise him abundantly and continuously which ought to be done all the time every day why since his mercy are new every morning as we read in lamentation chapter 3 and according to saint john chrysostom praise is a kind of sacrifice and offering pleasing to god when we praise him we are offering the sacrifice of praise and this is pleasing to god saint john chrysostom says let us not take this praise lightly let our life give voice to it before our mouth meaning let me praise him by my life by my action before praising him with my mouth let our morals express it before our tongue how i conduct my life before i praise him with my tongue in this way we are able to give praise to god even while remaining silent even while we are not talking but by our life we are praising God in this way even when we speak we make music in harmony with our life as if our life as the words the word of praise and when we speak this is the music of the song of our life so in verse 1 we are encouraged to praise the name of the Lord three times. Verse 2, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So in verse 2, we are encouraged not only to praise Him, but to do it forevermore. We, the rich, we don't know how to praise God as we ought. Now he is telling us how praising God should be done and says it should be done at least with affection and desire and continuously to the end forevermore. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When he said, blessed be the name of the Lord, mean with all the affections of your heart at the present time and forevermore to all future generations so that there shall never be an end to his praise. His praise continuously from one generation to generation to the end. And by the way, let me explain to you something here. In the divine liturgy, when the congregation say, as it was, and it shall be from generation to generation. What does this mean? Now we say it after those who Lord. But originally, this response was not after those who Lord. Those who Lord and lead us throughout the way into your kingdom were one passage and after Abuna says that in everything your name will be glorified blessed and exalted with beloved son and the holy spirit then the people respond as it was and it shall be and after this Abuna says peace be with all and the introduction of the fraction as it was and it shall be about what abuna is saying your name be exalted blessed and glorified with your beloved son and the holy spirit so the people are saying as the name of god the holy trinity was praised and as it shall be praised it is praised from generation to generation and under the age of ages. So this response actually matches verse 2. Let the name of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the beginning of time, 
the Lord's name was to be praised. That's why we say, as it was. And was praised by angels who were present at laying the foundation of the earth as we read in Job 38 and verse 4. And all the works of the Lord in their way have praised him ever since. Heavens declare the glory of God. Sun and moon, firmament, praise him, declare his greatness. St. Augustine says, Why was it said from this time forth, from this time forth and forevermore? Namely, from this very moment in which you utter these words, start praising and praise forevermore. So he's saying, if now you are praising God, don't stop, don't cease, praise him forevermore. St. John Chrysostom says, Will it in fact not be blessed if you do not pray? So he's saying, if we don't pray, does this mean the name of the Lord will not be praised? Do you note that he is not speaking about the blessing belonging to him and attributed to his nature, but what is done by a human being? So he's saying in this psalm, he's not speaking about whether God is praised or not. God is praised whether we praise him or not. He is praised in himself. But here in Psalm 13, he's instructing us to praise him from now forevermore. About this, St. Paul also speaks in his letter, Glorify God in your body and in your spirits which are God's. Glorify God in your life, not only by your mouth, but in your life. He is mighty and praiseworthy. That's why when Abuna says, let us give thanks to God, the response, it is meet and right. It is proper and fitting. That is the right thing to be done, to praise Him. Yet He becomes so when those serving Him give evidence of such a way of life that all witnesses bless their God. So St. Augustine is saying, he is mighty and praiseworthy. God is mighty and praiseworthy. Yet, he becomes so, he, God becomes praiseworthy and mighty when those serving him give evidence of such a way of life that all, witness, that all witnesses bless their Lord. Meaning what? When our life, how we conduct our life, in godliness, in holiness, glorifying God in our body and in our soul, in our spirits, then God will be praised by our life, by the way of our life that witnesses to God. This is also what Christ commanded us when we pray, hallowed be your name. The name of God is hallowed in itself. But when we say hallowed be your name means in our life, that is may be glorified also by our life. Just as it is dishonored when our way of living is evil. If we as Christians, the servant of God, we conducted our life in evil way, people actually will blaspheme on the name of the Lord because of us. But the name of God, it is glorified and blessed when we practice virtue. Verse 3 From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. God's praise is not merely to be ceaseless, continuous, but universally, from sunrise to sunset. Not restricted by the limits of Judea, but extending to the utmost limits of the earth. This establishes the geographical boundaries 
within which God's name is to be praised in the whole earth, in heaven and on earth. He speaks by the mouth of the prophet Malachi, chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts. It is a prophecy when the gospel should be sent into all the world because Malachi before Christ. So this is a prophecy about how the Gentiles will accept the faith. And many should be called from the east and west, from the north and south, and fear the Lord and worship him and offer a pure offering of praise unto him and his name be great among the Gentiles. St. John Chrysostom says, Don't you see how we put an end to the Jewish way and worship? Because he said, My name will be magnified among the Gentiles. This means there is an end to the Jewish worship and proclaimed the way of life of the church and her worship. God's praise ought to be praised by all nations, not only by Israel, but by all nations. For in every place, from east to west, there reveal the clear evidence of his wisdom, power and goodness. The wisdom of God, the power of God, wisdom of God is not limited to one nation, but from east to west and from north to south. Verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. So verse 4 is the first of six verses to the end of this psalm that show why God is worthy of praise. Why he is asking the servant of the Lord to praise him. He said, first reason why we should praise God, for the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. God's praise is to be found not only through the length, length of time, this time forth and forevermore, or the breadth from sunrise to sunset, but even through the height. So the, we can see the three dimension here. The length of time, continuous, and the place from north to south and east to west, and the height also, because the Lord is high above heaven, above nations, his glory above heaven. For though there may be many great kings and powerful princes therein, but God far out tops them all. God is above all kings, all princes, not only all the nations, but even over all the angels, because his glory is above heaven, and all who dwell in heaven. He rules over all the nations, and he directs their affairs. He is their sovereign king. St. Augustine says, The heathen are men. What wonder if the Lord be above all men? All of us who are human beings, definitely God, our Creator, is above all of us. They see with their eyes those whom they worship high above themselves to shine in heaven. So we see with our eyes, or, or the, the pagan, heathen, they see with their eyes those whom they worship like the stars high above themselves to shine in heaven, the sun, moon, stars, creature, which they serve while they neglect the Creator. So speaking about heathen, pagan heathen, they worshipped what's above them, like the sun, the moon, the stars, because they are shining in heaven. But they neglect the Creator, they ignore the Creator of sun, moon, stars, and these creatures. But not only is the Lord high above all heathen, 
but his glory is above the heavens also. The heavens look up to him above themselves. So he's saying, what you are worshipping, sun, moon, stars, these gods with a small g are looking for God, their creator, because he is the true God. Then verse 5, who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? That's the second reason why you worship him, why you praise him, because no one is similar to him. So this question, who is like the Lord our God, is not literal, it's not a literal question. But it intended to make a point instead of trying to obtain an answer. He wanted to make a point. No one is like God. He's not looking for answer. So the expected answer is no one is like God. His exaltation above everything on earth, on heaven, shows that God is incomparable. Nothing exists that's greater than God who dwells on high. God is to be praised as absolute, incomparably, and infinitely great. For he dwells on high, and from on high sees all, and rules all, and justly attracts all praise to himself. Although he is very high, verse 6, who humbles himself to be behold the things that are in the heavens and in earth. God who is very, very high and dwells on high, he humbles himself. God has everything subject to him, everything under his control. And yet, you can see such is his goodness that he looks after and attend to the smallest matters, things and persons, and especially to the meek and humble of heart. When we understand the greatness of God and his interest and care for creation, especially the mankind, we can say his care is very remarkable. He is so humble. Although he is the greatest being, but he takes care of the very lowly. So here the psalmist shared the idea of David in Psalm 8 verse 4. When he said in verse 7, God raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. In Psalm 8 verse 4 we read, Who is the man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? We are dust. Why you are taking care of us? Because he loves us. Also, fear, uh, Psalm 144 verse 3 has a similar sense of amazement. What amazes the psalmist is that God is exalted so high, but he has to humble himself to see not only the earth, but also the heaven, and yet at the same time, he cares for the lowly. So he watches over heaven, earth, and he, among all of this, the lowly are not forgotten. In his humility and love, God beholds the heavenlies, and cares for them. How much more would be his humility when he cares for men down on earth? When God cares about the heavenly, we say he is humble. How much more he is humble when he looks for the outcast? As Hannah, mother of Samuel, said in her prayer, he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. If it is such a humility for God to behold the things that are in the heaven and in earth, what an amazing humility was it for the Son of God to come from heaven to earth and take our nature that he may seek and to save that which was lost. 
So we say, if God cares about heaven, that's humbleness. If cares about the earth, that's more humbleness. If he cares about the poor and the needy on earth, that is more and more humbleness. But when he comes and took our form, the form of man, and lives as a poor, and he has no place to rest his head, that is the extreme humbleness. There is no more humbleness than this. So these words are true of God, who as God left heaven and became man. That's why it was more fitting that his blessed mother, St. Mary, should adapt this psalm to herself by saying, he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She knew she is poor, but God looked upon her and elevated her to be the mother of God. St. Augustine says, he who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth, he glorifies the humble, yet, yet not to make them proud. When God glorified the humble as he glorified St. Mary, not to make her proud, for he dwells in those whom he lifts up high. He dwells in the humble to lift them up high. Make them his heaven for himself, because heaven is the dwelling of God. So when God dwells in me, I become his heaven. And seeing them not proud, God will never dwell in a prideful person, but he will dwell in those who are perpetually, continuously submitting to him. He, while being in heaven, he beholds them as a dwelling place for himself. When God in heaven beholds the things on earth, he sees the poor down in the dust and the needy in the ash heap and he raises them up. These words are taken, but with little variation from the song of Hannah, mother of Samuel, and are recalled, though not exactly, by Saint Mary, the mother of God. He raises the poor out of the dust. So who are sitting in the dust? In Isaiah, chapter 47 verse 1 to sit in the dust or to embrace ash heap lamentation 4 verse 5 is an oriental metaphor for a condition of extreme degradation and misery so those who are sitting in the dust or embracing ash heap means they are living a miserable life that's the extreme degradation he explained why God looks down on the humble. Why? In order to exalt them. In order to lift them up from the dust and from the ash heap. And though this is most applicable to individual raised by God from the lowest to highest position, like Joseph who was in prison and God made him the second man in Egypt, Moses who was a shepherd, but God made him a leader of his people. David was a little boy shepherd, God made him king over Israel, and many, many other examples. But this is true of whole human race, all of us. The little flock, the believers, to whom the Lord said, do not fear little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We are nothing, but God actually make us heirs with him, and he gave us the kingdom as inheritance. He, God has humbled himself to encounter those who sit on the ash heap with the sinners, to forgive them. So those who are in the dust or ash heap can be the sinners. And God came to forgive the sinners, to sanctify them, to prepare them to have fellowship with the heavenly in their everlasting heavenly praises.
Also, there are several spiritual ideas brought out by the commentators who understand the poor or needy as Christ himself, who raises the poor out of the dust. Poor here can be the Lord Jesus Christ, because he lived in poverty, and lift the needy out of the ash heap. Needy also can be about Lord Jesus Christ, who had no place to rest his head. So they said, Jesus, in his mortal existence here on earth, from the moment of his incarnation in the womb of Virgin Mary, God elevated him and raised him in his ascension from earth to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. In reference to Christ and John, Chrysostom reminded us that by his birth in the manger stable, that is like sitting in ashes and among the dust, who was literally brought down in his humiliation to the ash heap, whence he was exalted again to riches and honor in his resurrection and ascension, whereof holy Job was a type, like Job sitting in ashes and dust, but God exalted him when he healed him. Also dust or earth can refer to the Jews, and the Gentiles, the ash heap refers to the Gentiles. So God lifted the believers from the Jews and the Gentiles to be his children. How God chooses his elect from both uh, without any discrimination to set them with his angel and saints in heaven. Or those who are sitting in dust or ashes, some other commentator said both applies to Gentiles. Gentiles who were the dust and ashes, it is their life before Christ in malice and poverty of, of virtue. They did not know God, that's the extreme poverty. So the dust is the poverty of their ignorance of God, and the ashes is the, their sins and their evil and wickedness, especially in idol-worshipping rites. But we are taught that God puts them in a level with the Jews who became believers, truly the princes of his people, for Israel denotes a prince with God. Like St. Mark was a Jewish person, but he came and preached Egypt, and the Egyptians were pagan and worshipping idols. God put all the Egyptians, the believers, and St. Mark in the same level. Verse 8, that he may seat him the poor and needy, with the princes, with the princes of his people. The prayer of Hannah, mother, the mother of Samuel, are still followed. He may seat him with the princes. You can find the same word in First Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. The story of God's care for Hannah, mother of Samuel, thus become a model for God's care for Israel. As God cared for Hannah, he cares for all his people. It is a figure for elevation to the highest rank of dignity, as we read in Job chapter 36 and verse 7. To seat him with the princes means how God elevates his people to the highest rank and dignity, as we read in Job 36 verse 7. God lifts the poor and needy from the depth up to the heights. God gave him a position with the nobles and with the great people upon the earth. When the chastity of Joseph was tried and shown, and he was imprisoned, but God elevated him, raised him from prison dust, and set him with the princes, he became the second man of Egypt. So the Bible is well supplied with instances where God made something remarkable out of ordinary people. People just were ordinary or poor and needy, 
what God elevated sin. For example, Abraham became the father of nations. David, the shepherd boy, slayed giant Goliath, and later he became a king. Gideon and his little band of 300 soldiers defeated mighty army. Saint Mary, ordinary young poor woman from an obscure town, became the mother of God, the mother of the Savior of the whole world. Saul, the chief among sinners, became Saint Paul, the chief among the apostles. So, in the light of the new covenant, we can make the connection with God's work in the life of believers. Before, we were miserable under sentence of death, but through his salvation, now we, we inherit the kingdom of God. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, who are seated now with the princes. So the elevation from a state of sin and death, to that of glory and immortality, to an equality with the angels, to share in that happiness, that indeed is the true and most to be sought for elevation. So that's the real elevation. To be seated in princes, it's about our salvation. The last verse, He grants the barren woman a home, like a joyful mother of children, praise the Lord. A barren woman was in Old Testament a social outcast. She was a disappointment to her husband and to other women because the Messiah would not come from his offspring. With mankind, a low position is considered a misfortune, but to be barren is looked upon in the same light by womanhood, as if God doesn't accept or approve of this woman to be barren. But as God looks down on the humble man, so as to raise him from the lowest to the highest position, he also looks down on the humble women, thereby changing her barrenness into fertility. And I have many examples, Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, mother of Samuel, Elizabeth. The reference in verse 6 and 7 in this psalm to the song of Hannah, mother of Samuel, suggest this further reference to the experience of Hannah. So verse 9 mainly refers to Hannah, who was barren, but God gave her Samuel, as an instance of the way in which God has compassion on those who are despised. So this too is suggested as a reason why God should be praised and worshipped. Why you should praise God? Because actually He comforts those who are considered outcast. This is quite applicable to several females like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Anna, and others, but it must not be restricted to a literal interpretation, literal barrenness, but probably under the figure of the once childless wife delighted with the family of son, the son pointed to Zion. What do I mean? The church of the Gentiles in the Old Testament was barren, did not bring any children to God. But in the New Covenant, the church of the Gentiles brought many, many children to God. The barren woman as Israel, whose curse of barrenness was ultimately removed and who became as prophesied a joyful mother of children. But also the barren woman can be the church of the Gentiles that remained barren for a long time, but ultimately begot many children according to the word of Isaiah 54 verse 1, Sing, O barren, who have not born 
adopted later and republished by St. Paul in his letter to Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. Also, other take verse 9 of a soul that was unfruitful, did not bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in good work, but after wedded to Christ by repentance and love, start to bring forth abundant children to him. The soul carried and bore the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A joyful mother of children. As the barren woman is when she becomes the mother of the children, she became so happy. And indeed, every woman rejoices when a man is born into the world. And so does the church and people of God. When souls are born again among themselves, this causes great joy among the saints. When people join the church, people non-believers or atheists join the church, this brings a joy. Praise the Lord, Alleluia. Why? Because the caring, loving God who comes from the highest heaven to help the humble of the earth is worthy of all praise. Not only for the church fruitfulness, but for all the great and good things that the Lord has promised to do to his people and he has done, is doing and will keep doing. It is significant to remember that Jesus sang these words on the night he was betrayed and arrested because I told you they pray Psalm 113 and 114 before Passover. So the Lord Jesus Christ prayed this psalm with Psalm 114 the night before his crucifixion and after the Passover he prayed Psalm 115, 116, 117 and 118. This concludes Psalm 113. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.